From the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing, China, this is the China in the World podcast, hosted by Paul Hanley. Welcome back to the China in the World podcast. This is the final episode in our special series commemorating the fifth anniversary of the China in the World podcast. As part of this special series, I've been interviewing five of China's most senior and influential scholars on the U.S.-China relationship. For those who have missed the first four episodes, I encourage you to go back listen to those discussions uh, with Professor Cui Li Ru, uh, former president of Kicker, uh, Wang Ji Se. Uh, from Beijing University, Yen Shui Tong from Tsinghua, and Shi Ying Hong from People's University. Uh, these scholars provided fascinating insights uh, into their perspectives on the past 40 years of U.S.-China relations, the current state, as well as prospects for the future. For our fifth and final episode in the series, we're really fortunate to welcome Professor Yao Yang from Beijing University. Yao Yang serves as the director of the China Center for Economic Research and the dean of the National School of Development, both at Beijing University. He's a member of the China Finance 40 Forum, a group of 40 of the most influential finance and economic experts uh, in China. He's a prolific writer. Uh, he writes for leading magazines and newspapers, including the Financial Times and the Project Syndicate. He's published well over 100 research papers uh, and is the author of a number of books, on institutional economics and economic development in China. Uh, after my uh, after I arrived at Carnegie back in 2010, I asked my colleague uh, Yukon Huang at Carnegie for a list of China's most uh, important and impressive China economists, and Yao Yang was the first name on that list, and that carries a lot of uh, weight for me. That's a serious endorsement, Yao Yang. Thank you very much for Thank joining. You. Thank joining. you. Thank you. Thanks Thank for you joining well. the podcast. I want to start out, you know, U.S. and China normalized relations 40 years ago this month. Um, and if we can, well, let's start out by looking back over the past 40 years of that relationship in an effort to think about the next 40 years. Mm -hmm. In your view, what are the major lessons we should have taken away from the past 40 years of relations? How mm -hmm. do they inf inform U.S. and China in their approach going forward? Well, in the last 40 years, uh, I think we can divide it into two phases. Uh, one is the first 30 years. The American policy towards China was supported by this belief. If we engage China, China will become more like us. Mm. So the engagement policy... More like us, you mean more market economy, politically right. more open? Right, right, right. So, so I was saying... I think that's a very important belief mm -hmm. that uh, supported the Americans' uh, engagement policy toward China. Mm. And if you l we look back into the history, I would say that policy succeeded. China did move toward uh, the market, uh, and the Chinese society became more open. Right? But over the last uh, 10 years, uh, uh, this belief... Uh, has been faltering mm -hmm. in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, if you ask uh, most American uh, elites, I don't think we're going to find uh, many of them 
who still believe in that. Mm. So that actually changed a lot mm-hmm. American attitudes towards China. And this had a big impact over the last 10 years and how Americans look at the U.S.-China relationship. 40 years ago in 1979 when Deng Xiaoping initiated the first phase of reform and opening up in China, he did that uh, simultaneously with establishing formal diplomatic relations with the U.S. Right. In fact, talking last week to one Chinese scholar, he said to me, you know, who else would China be opening up to if not to the U.S. and its economy. Right. In your view, are China's reform and opening up and U.S.-China relations still linked today? Mm. Uh, how has how has the reform and opening up impacted the bilateral relationship? How has the bilateral relationship mm-hmm. impacted the economic reform? Mm-hmm. Put simply, would greater efforts today by China to deepen and expand its reform mm-hmm. be beneficial to the future de- development of U.S.-China? Uh, yes, uh, definitely. But uh, I want to go back to the sure. history a little bit. Uh, most of the people believe China began this open door policy in 1979. I think that was wrong. Mm. Uh, actually, China opened up after President Nixon's visit to China in the uh, early 1972. Yeah, 1972. Uh, you, you you look at the China's policy at that time. China began to open up. I still remember. As a child, my father and his colleagues uh, used to use our classroom in elementary school uh, in the evening after their work to do what? To study English. Mm. They began to study English. And this was in the early 70s, after yeah. President Nixon's visit. Yeah, exactly. So, which means China began to open up. All right. uh, of course, uh, opening up, uh, speed up uh, after 1978, that's definitely true. I'm not sure if there is a link between this normalization of relations between the two countries and China's open-door policy and reform. Mm -hmm. I think mostly it's an accident. Mm. It's just a coincidence. China began Mm. to have a reform program going on. Uh, Over the last 40 years, as I said, the Chinese society has changed quite a lot. And I believe uh, American uh, engagement policy played uh, quite a role in uh, this progress. Uh, So today, uh, many American friends told me, oh, we want to delink with China, uh, or at least partially delink with China. This is this concept of decoupling the uh, economic uh, relationship. Right. Right. I'm not sure uh, decoupling is a good idea. Uh, first of all, it's very difficult for two countries uh, to decouple. Uh, we have uh, so many exchanges on all fronts, right? And also, decoupling probably is going to lead to a cold war, mm. uh, probably an economic cold war, mm. right? But that's still going to be really bad for the two countries. We are going to waste a lot of resources on this mm. wasteful competition. Mm. And it's not a good news for the whole world, you mm. know, the, two largest countries' economies are fighting each other, mm-hmm. and other countries have to select a size. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a detrimental for global growth mm. and uh, stability. 
The uh, let, let me ask a little bit. We can come back to these, this question of decoupling because it's an mm. important point that you right. raise. But I want to ask you about China's, looking back at the last 40 years, China's rapid economic growth over that time period mm-hmm. has been truly remarkable. Right. Um, and one of the questions that I explored with the other four scholars I spoke to as part of this fifth anniversary series is related to an ongoing debate that's taking place in China over right. what has been the most important factor in achieving uh-huh. this rapid economic growth. Mm-hmm. Has it been, for example, the state-led aspect of mm-hmm. China's economic model? Mm-hmm. Or has it been the private sector, the market reforms, the free mm-hmm. market mechanisms that have been mm-hmm. uh, implemented in China? Uh, where this debate in China ultimately comes out, will necessarily impact the future trajectory of China's mm-hmm. own economic evolution. And so I wanted to get your perspective on that. Yeah, I'm kind of in the middle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would just say the government has played a, quite a critical role over there. Um, so I have a theory to explain China's mm-hmm. political economy. Uh, I coined this term disinterested government. So the Chinese government Disinterested government. Disinterested, disinterested with respect to the fights among interested groups in a society. So, so the Chinese government or the Communist Party has been more or less neutral toward uh, uh, interested groups in the society. And because of that, the government uh, can choose quite a selective policies mm. to promote economic growth. Like in the early days, uh, the, the party started the four SEZs, Special Economic Zones. That's really selective. Uh, I still remember as a young college student, uh, I really hated mm. uh, SEZs because SEZs enjoyed so many preferential policies mm-hmm. extended by the central government, right? But exactly because of that, uh, China has been growing so fast. Because resources are allocated to the most productive sections of the society, right? But that has been said. I would say, if you talk about who are the main drivers for economic growth, I would say the private sector. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it, right? Um, even twenty years ago, we did a study about the role of private sector in China, and we reached a conclusion and. Today, I still have that conclusion. I think many people have been fooled by China's infrastructure uh, build-up, mm-hmm. but that was quite late. Uh, we had have had uh, two waves of intra- infrastructure build-up. One was 20 years ago. Another one was uh, the last uh, 10 years. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. But the, Since the global financial crisis. R- right. Second round. Right. Yeah, but... The, but in the first 20 years of reform and opening, uh, infrastructure was really bad in China. Mm-hmm. Right? Who played the critical role for growth? First, TVEs, township and village enterprises. But they were mostly privately run. Okay? But then, uh, entering the 90s, mostly the private uh, enterprises. Mm-hmm. At that time, SOEs, state-owned uh, uh, enterprises were declining, mm-hmm. were being privatized, right? So the main driver definitely was private companies at that time. But even 
if you look at the last 20 years, uh, except uh, the last, uh, say, two years, mm -hmm. the share of private economy was growing. Mm -hmm. And the share of SOE was declining. Only in the last two years mm. did the SOE share begin to increase, right? So uh, I, I think we have to look at the history to draw the conclusion. Mm -hmm. Let's talk uh, about the current U.S.-China trade tensions. We'll fast forward to the current sort of state of the relationship um, how do you assess, as an economist, what's going on? What are the key challenges that have led to this current high point in trade tension mm -hmm. between the U.S. and China? All mm -hmm. focus now is on this 90-day period announced right. after Buenos Aires and right. what will happen on uh, March uh, 2nd in terms right. of uh, an outcome. But how do you assess mm -hmm. what the dynamics are? What are the challenges? How did we get to this point? Uh, yeah, I, I, I have to say that uh, China's uh, foreign trade policy in the past uh, were more or less based on a mercantilist uh, belief, right? So, for example, we had a dual-track exchange rate regime. Now, after that, we had a fixed exchange rate regime. We subsidized export and we restrict imports, right? All those mercantilist approach. Uh, United States uh, tolerated China for a long time. Uh, that was because the Chinese economy was relatively small, mm -hmm. and also because of that belief, China will become more like us. But over the last 10 years, uh, the American belief was basically gone, and the Chinese economy has become so big. Mm -hmm. uh, and the shock, uh, to United States, uh, to the rest of the world, has been so huge. And let me give you just a one number. Ten years ago, uh, there were only 35 Chinese companies uh, that were uh, Fortune uh, top 500. Mm -hmm. Okay, But last year, uh, 2018, guess what? 120. Mm. United States, mm. 126. Mm. So that's a China's grew four times since yeah. ten years ago. Yeah, just ten year time frame. Yeah, only in ten years time, right? So that's the shock mm -hmm. China sent mm -hmm. to the whole world. Uh, I think uh, that China has to bear this in mind, mm -hmm. uh, right? Uh, and I also believe that was the root cause for this trade war, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, looking at the prospect uh, of a settlement. Uh, I'm kind of optimistic uh, about uh, a settlement mm. by March the 2nd, because mm -hmm. right? that's the deadline of this 90 days. Right. But uh, this agreement is going to be tentative, mm -hmm. it's not going to be in the final settlement. Mm -hmm. um, I think President Trump really wants the agreement, mm -hmm. although the, his own party and also uh, Democrats mm -hmm. probably don't want to have a rush agreement mm -hmm. with China. Mm -hmm. So after March the 2nd, probably we are going to have kind of a peaceful several months. Mm -hmm. And then by the end of this year, we are going to see the tension to rise again because the United States is going to enter this campaign year. Right. And both parties 
China will resurface. Yeah. Let me reconcile what you just said, Mm -hmm. which I tend to agree with. Mm -hmm. Um, I often say, for example, that the Trump administration is putting forward concerns about the mercantilist aspect of China's economy. Right. Wants China's economy, wants more fair and reciprocal trade arrangements. you know, doesn't understand where markets that are open to China around the world mm-hmm. are closed off to foreign competition here, or mm-hmm. intellectual property protection, mm-hmm. which is important for foreign companies, but also important for Chinese companies. Right. Um, uh, and then, you know, China's use of industrial policies that distort the global economy. These all mm-hmm. make imminent sense to me. But when we talk to Chinese leaders about these questions, what we hear is mm-hmm. that the pressure from the Trump administration is really, it, it's its more about Trump's short-term politics. He's trying to get political victories. Mm-hmm. Or it's about a strategic effort by the United States to block China's rise. Mm-hmm. Recently, the narrative has been that this is about the U.S. trying to blame China for its own problems. <laughs> and how does that, is this simply posturing and rhetoric, or are, is there a belief that uh-huh. what the Trump administration is putting forward is related to those three? Uh, I think uh, for the mercantilist approach to trade, uh, China has passed at that uh, stage. Trade is not that important as a component for China's future economic mm-hmm. growth, right? And on the other hand, in order to increase Chinese people's welfare, we should open up our market, right? For China's own interests, yeah, right? for China's own interests. So for that part, I think China should open up, right? lower the tariff, right? get rid of those restrictive policies. Uh, to foreign goods, uh, particularly in the service sector, right? Uh, but then, on the other hand, you know, the Trump administration also want to change China's domestic institutions and policies. I think on that, this it, is the perception in China that that right. Trump administration is trying to change China's system of. Right. Government, economic uh, model, and the like, right. political system included? Uh, political system probably not included, mm-hmm. but uh, say SOE uh, policy, mm-hmm. uh, innovation policy. Uh, I'm not saying that uh, we should not talk about that, but that's uh, more difficult than trade issue, right? Uh, and also intellectual property rights issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, those issues are quite clear. China should have a change, and I believe that's good for China too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but SOE policies, it's a, it's a, even within China, we have a lot of debate. Right. Uh, worldwide, right. there are a lot of debates. Right. So it's, a, it's an, a not very clear where we should draw the line. Mm-hmm. So I, if uh, I were asked to give a recommendation, I would say, Let's settle down IPR issue, trade issue first. Mm-hmm. Then we go on to talk about uh, SOE policy, innovation policy, mm-hmm. industrial uh, mm-hmm. policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, those can be negotiated, mm-hmm. but that's going to take a probably a longer time 
for the two countries to reach agreement. Th- th- that's my sense of where, when I talk to Chinese officials and Chinese experts, the things that I hear are um, some cautious optimism that a deal can be reached. Right. Um, China can buy more products. China mm. and, and President Trump seems to be fixated <laughs> on the trade deficit and, right. and China buying more products. This is right. more, I think, about President Trump than anything else. Most economists say the trade deficit is not uh, the important uh, statistic to look at. And buying products, additional products from the U.S. is more mm-hmm. of a Band-Aid fix than anything. It's not a long-term sustainable fix. I also hear uh, Chinese uh, officials and, and experts say we can do a lot in terms of market access, opening up markets uh, in right. China, and uh, significant improvements in the area of intellectual property. Right. But then in terms of the others, the SOEs, the subsidies, right, the right. sort of the more state-led aspect of China's system, mm-hmm. it seems those are more difficult and will be take a longer time to address. Right. Is that your sense of where China is on this? And then I guess my question would be, you are optimistic about some outcome on March 2nd. And the two questions I would ask is, what China is willing to put forward in this context of the 90-day negotiations, do you think that that will be broad enough, deep enough, and fast enough in terms mm-hmm. of pace mm-hmm. to satisfy the needs of the, the Trump administration? Mm-hmm. And second, how can the Trump administration, when asked the question, which they will be asked, right. how is this deal different right. than any other deal where right. China agreed to do things mm-hmm. but then didn't follow through? How yeah. do they answer that question right. on March 2nd? <laughs> right, right. Uh, I, I, I'm optimistic uh, about uh, the March 2nd deal. I think the deal is going to deal with IPR, uh, trade issue, and also market access issues. Okay. And then on the U.S. side, uh, uh, United States is going to say, oh, we're not going to raise the tariff uh, anymore. So we're going to stay at this 10% tariff. Okay. Uh, so that that would be the deal, I think. In addition to buying more products, right. LNG and right. agricultural products, right, and right, right. And then the hard question is your second question, right? I think Democrats, uh, Republicans alike, will ask this question: How can we ensure that China opens its markets? Because China has been saying this for a long time, right? So for that, uh, I would uh, propose a kind of uh, a bilateral uh, efforts to do some uh, third-party assessment, mm-hmm. right? For example, United States appoint one think tank, and then the Chinese government appoint another think tank, and those two think tanks can join hand to act a third-party. Yeah, to to do the assessment to verify sort of right. a, a, a me- some sort of mechanism for enforcement and verification right to make sure that the agreement is actually implemented in right. concrete terms I think right. that's a a, yeah. a a quite a good recommendation right. Yao Yang I want to close our discussion here by talking about sort of the future uh, mm. of the us China relationship mm. we're moving into what people describe as a more competitive uh, right. relationship. And mm-hmm. as an economist, uh, thinking about the future sort of framework, and 
how we update and modernize mm. the framework. What would the key considerations in your perspective be to inform this new approach? Uh, I think uh, even with uh, some agreements uh, between the two countries, uh, United States is still going to restrict uh, technological transfers from U.S. to China. Uh, Huawei is a good case in point. At point, uh, so in the future, uh, probably partial decoupling is inevitable. Mm. Uh, although I, I don't think that's a good idea. Uh, And you're in, talking specifically on the technology. Yeah, right? technology. Yeah. I, I think that will be mm -hmm. the decoupling side. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, probably the U.S. is going to make a mistake on this. Because in the short run, uh, yes, uh, China probably uh, will progress more slowly. But in the long run, uh, you know, China is becoming richer and richer. We have saved so much. So China will increase tremendously uh, uh, into the investment of technology. Okay, So in the future, uh, probably China will have faster technological progress in the end. Mm. And uh, I, I don't know the consequence of this competition, right? Uh, but then probably the two countries are going to create two separate technological systems. Mm. Uh, and then that's going to be bad for the whole world. So the U.S.-China relationship looking forward, the key domain to look at is this competition between the technology spheres. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and this is something that, just to go back to something I said at the beginning, uh -huh. this is something Yukon Huang is uh -huh. looking very closely at as right. well. And right. so to hear that from both of you, I think mm. we need to pay attention. Professor yeah. Yaoyang, thank you so much for taking time today to talk to us on the China and the World podcast. Mm. We look forward to having you back. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining the China and the World podcast. Be sure to check out more content from the Carnegie Tsinghua Center on our website.